Welcome to another episode of Celluloid Citizens. I have my guest slash co-host Chris Burke with me. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. You know, can't complain. I just watched the film we're going to be covering, The Empty Man, for the second time today. Hey, great. I did a rewatch last night. Yeah, Empty Man is a 2020 film written and directed by David Pryor, starring, let me just open this up here, James Badge Dale, Marin Ireland, Sasha, I should have opened these already, <laughs> Sasha Frolova. They give good, good performances here. I, yeah, there's nobody here that I was really familiar with um, that I can recall. Although there was, oh, well, there is one one guest spot that, that I appreciated that I actually did not recognize because the person in question is quite a chameleon. Uh, but we'll maybe leave that for a little bit later on. Yeah, I was joking with my girlfriend on the first watch, like, this is the quintessential movie of, like, I know that guy. Where do I know that guy from? Or the, I've seen that actress. What was she in? And it's like the whole cast is that. Which I kind of like, actually. It sort of fits with the theme of, um, well, we'll get into it, but, like, The Empty Man is all about, like, the nature of reality and, like, things like that. Yeah, it definitely plays with viewer expectation and, you know, the idea of, of what the viewer is, is bringing to the table and imposing on the story or being, you know, suggestively being, you know, imposed upon the story by the viewer in some way. So there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, and we might even, you know, you might even talk about that in a, in a metafictional sense, but definitely at least within the story, uh, there's a lot of shifting of narrative perspective in, in unsettling ways, let's say. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about this film is that uh, as you said, you kind of don't know what to expect going in. Um, I guess it's easier if we just start going chronologically. Um, so we, we open the film in, I believe it's Bhutan. Yeah, mountainous mountainous regions of Bhutan, I believe, is where that is. So. Yeah, is that Tibet? Forgive my geographic... Uh, uh, it's, it's its own country, but it, it borders on, uh, I believe, Nepal and possibly... A part of China, at least. I'm not sure about Tibet, but yeah, it's in that general you know, Southern Asian uh, vicinity. I think maybe it borders on India, too. All right. That's what I figured. So we we open with these two couples that are backpacking, camping, and like climbing this mountain in Bhutan. And uh, one of them, one of them starts to hear this noise and he kind of follows the noise and ends up falling into this crack between these two rocks. Uh, so the, you know, one of the friends is like, oh shit. And he, you know, gets a climbing rope and goes down. And this was one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. Um, it's just a great, it's oh, a it's great creepy. way to open a horror film. But I just also like, I'm a real sucker when it comes to interesting looking skeletons. <laughs> and this one was like, interest. <laughs> this was definitely, cause it's like, first of all, you notice scale wise, it looks like this thing was like 10 feet tall or something. Yeah, definitely an abnormal size. And there's like extra stuff that's. Yeah. And it skeletal. looks like it could be, I don't know, tentacles. It could be wings. There's just these little extra things coming out. Tubular structure things. And the guy who fell in, forgive me. I don't actually remember the actor or the, you know, the characters names. It's Greg and Paul, but I always mix up who's who. So basically, uh, the guy who fell in, he's sitting in like a lotus position in front of this skeleton, which is also sort of sitting in a lotus position. Um, and that's another thing I, I love about this film is like, I have a, I have a weird like 
fascination with the niche horror that is like taking Buddhism and making it creepy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but it, it just like it really hits the spot. I did not know I needed in my life. Yeah, I thought it was interesting actually backing up just a tiny bit before they actually even get yeah. up to the the top where they where they're climbing. They have a very quick encounter that you don't really notice on a first watch because it's like one of the very first things. But it's just like this awkward gaze between a, a group of passing monks uh, who are coming down from the mountain. They pass the you know the four main characters in the opening and they just exchange this really something's wrong kind of look. It's a look of warning or foreboding, and I didn't even notice it or remember it from the first watch. Yeah, I will say I noticed it more on the second watch because the first watch you just think, oh, they're just kind of like, geez, more American tourists, what the hell. But on the second watch, you maybe get the sense like, oh, maybe they're like, should we warn them or, you know. Yeah, but then there'd be the whole language barrier thing and the fact that they're passing each right. other and, and they're yeah. clearly en route away from somewhere else and, uh, you know. It, it, it's it definitely just still has the impression of they haven't even gotten to the the movie proper. I mean, it's a whole Buddhist thing too to like let people let things be and like not interfere. I guess. Yeah. Or yeah, who knows? Um, maybe maybe they have their own nefarious interests that are that are behind the scenes that we never find out about. That's true. This is one of the more interesting aspects of the film is that you know when when I first saw this, I thought, okay, so this whole movie is going to be set in Bhutan. And it's going to be about this guy who's got this weird, like, mental illness kind of fugue state going on because he ran into the skeleton. And he finds this, like, flute. So I thought that would be the whole film. Yeah, pretty much. Which is a normal assumption because most films, you know, especially bigger budgeted films, that's how, you know... We're introduced to the characters. Those are going to be your characters for the movie. Introduced to the setting. That's going to be your setting for the movie. Yeah, pretty much every time. And it, this film does not do that. Yeah. Pretty much every time they, um, they, you think you have an idea of where it's going to go. It, it does something to really change direction. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was one of the strengths of the movie, even though it's pulling on a lot of other influences. Uh, it, it keeps being unpredictable in a convincing way. Um, yeah, there's almost a... I had this weird feeling watching it like it's almost like a creepy pasta anthology film, even though it's not an anthology film because it's like every segment is the same detective. Yeah. There are different settings, but, you know, it's still the same kind of you realize at the end it's still more or less connected. But while you're watching it, you're not really sure, like, you know, how is the camp connected? You've seen it in an article about the Pontifex Institute, but how specifically and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, they, they leave a lot of the connective details, like quick flashes on the screen of a Wikipedia article. And, and that'll tell you why they move from one place to another. And like a, it feels kind of confusing for a while. But then when it kind of comes into its own, like you start to see more and more and it just keeps expanding on itself in, in really interesting ways. And I, yeah, I really appreciated that. Like it, it, it allows you as a view, like it, it sees you as a viewer as intelligent enough to piece everything together, which I always appreciate. Yep. They gave just the right amount of, like it's not hammering home. Like we're going to the camp <laughs> because it's connected to the Pontifex. And like there's one, and I missed this the first time. There's one quick flash of a picture of it when he's doing the wiki search. Yep. And if you, and like that's your only indication. Yeah. And if, if you notice, like there's also, mentions of the like the city lights bookstore and and, and connections to the uh, was it 
the guy Parsons um, from, you know, the NASA guy who was into the occult. I forget his first name, but you know, there's a, there's connections there. And there's all kinds of like little details that fill in gaps between like the real world and the idea of the, the urban legend come alive thing that happens in the movie. And honestly, like the way it was marketed, I thought it was just going to be a teen slasher that's based around some urban legend, which I've seen a thousand times. And I think part of the issue was, yeah, the marketing from what I've heard, I haven't watched the trailer, but from what I've heard from people, they were like, it just looked like it'd be the bye-bye man or something like that. I didn't even want to watch it, which is like, there's nothing wrong with that sort of film, but yeah, I could see why people were like, Oh, I don't want to watch another one of those. Yeah. I didn't even have it on my list because I was like, Oh, this looks kind of dumb and something I've seen before, but then everybody started talking about it. And so I gave it a spin and it's really, you know, it does combine a whole bunch of different subgenres of horror, but um, the teen slasher element is actually probably the smallest out of all the clear influences on there. Like there's only really a couple of scenes that really clearly tie back to that kind of movie. It's true. But anyway, so um, to tie up the very beginning real quick, uh, they managed to get their friend. Oh, before this, he, he whispers to his friend, like, if you touch me, you'll die. Yeah. And a really, this is very kind of creepy, like, He's like waiting and he's like, maybe I shouldn't touch him. But then ultimately he does because he's like, I got to get you out of here. Yeah, there's, there's not any way. And that's... they managed to find a a cabin before like this huge storm rolls in. Um, And yeah, for the like for the first 15 minutes, it's just like they're arguing about what they're going to do with their friend. They're like miles away from any hospital. So that's not really a good idea. And even if they were going to try that, there's this like snowstorm where they'd probably freeze to death in like an hour yeah and we should probably add that like their friend when they get him out of that little hole in the cave like he can't talk or he's, he's completely unfunctional they have to really work to get him out of there and, and the other guy in the party has to literally carry him to the abandoned cabin and he, like he's not speaking but the only thing that he could say was that very faint if you touch me you'll die thing and you know, eventually. Yeah, and he sort of, I don't remember if this is early on, but he starts doing these clicking noises. Yeah, I love the Foley work there and, and like how they they have all these weird like mantras and, and subdued vocalizations that you can't make any sense of, but they gain meaning through the way that they're repeated, which is a theme of the movie in a major way. Yeah, but again, like the whole taking like almost like Buddhist chanting and making it into like a horror uh, film soundtrack is pretty great. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, at some point, um, I believe it's his girlfriend, the the man who's like in this fugue state. Uh, she just sort of loses it. You know, she's like, you know, everyone goes out to, or the other two go out to, I forget what they're even doing. I think they're looking if they can, Someone's know. trying to go back for help and get through the pass, either through the storm or after the storm has passed. But uh, they, they have to turn back because they, they couldn't make it through like a like a bridge or something. They, they couldn't make it through somewhere because of a snowstorm. And uh, while they're gone, uh, the girlfriend of the guy who's been essentially rendered unconscious, um, she's you know, she starts seeing and hearing things. And you know, she has a strange encounter while the, the other two are gone to get help. Uh, out in the, she's out in the snow and she sees this figure that she is asking for help and then it doesn't say anything and suddenly it starts to rush her and like that's the first like visible real threat that we we've really seen in the movie so far yeah yeah and um 
I would say of everything, I understand why they did stuff like this because they were seemingly trying to market this as a regular horror film. And like, so that sort of stuff when they have like this kind of tall skeletal figure in a robe that like rushes at people. That's like the most, um, I guess, typical horror film stuff they do. Yeah. Or it's some of it, at least, you know, like the jump scares type of thing. Yeah, it, it does feel, you know, at this point, it still feels somewhat familiar in terms of the kind of movie you might be expecting to see. It's true. I mean, it, it's going, you know, other than the setting being, you know, not in America or Canada or anywhere all that familiar, it it isn't doing anything that unique. But you get sort of glimpses, like with the skeleton, like, you're sort of like, well, that's weird and like borderline geiger-esque you like sort of think about like alien and like the design of that yeah because it kind of looks like he's like strapped into the cave wall like there's definitely this this idea of this structurally being melded into the landscape of in some way yeah but so they eventually the, the other two of the party come back um girlfriend's flipping out like i saw something did you see anything they just think she's losing it and they're like no we didn't see anything uh, we cut to her playing this flute. The flutes never really, they don't really go into detail about the flute. You get the sense it's sort of a connected to this creature in some way. Yeah, they leave that pretty vague. Which I liked. You don't really need to spell it out. I think I wouldn't have liked it as much if they were like, this flute draws the creature and, you know, I just pieced together that the reason they blow into an empty bottle on the bridge is probably the mimicking of that flute. Oh, sound. yeah. It's to create the origin of, of the of what will later appear as an urban legend, because what's happening in the prologue is like 25 years before the main action that's going to come after like the 25 minute mark. Right. That's true. I didn't actually specify. So this takes place in the past. Yeah. Sometime in the 90s, um, mid 90s, maybe. Yeah. But like, that's what I'm saying, though, like. Like, literally just now I pieced together, oh, that's why they're blowing into a bottle, because it's like the the flute thing. Yeah, it's that kind of airy sound that's, you know, meditative in a way, but then also used to invite certain other things. Yeah, and, like, I guess, um, I hesitate to make this reference, but I was thinking about the music of Eric Zahn, because, you know, it's sort of getting into this, like, borderline weird fiction territory in terms of like there's this weird skeleton and people are starting to just feel really weird and there's this flute they keep playing and and the girlfriend keeps kind of um, like giving weird looks and seeming to be you know it's well they there's riffs that develop or are magnified you know during the first day or two that they're in that cabin uh and and from that weird encounter that she had that they weren't part of uh and then those really start to blow up when they when they discover that the boyfriend has basically disappeared uh, and they go looking for him and that's, and then they find him and that's when the, the real fun starts. Yeah. I would say this scene in particular was when I was really like, Oh shit. Like this was when I was like, what am I? Even oh yeah. For? That was such a good moment. The, the end of the prologue there. Do you, you want to share that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, they find the, the catatonic more or less catatonic boyfriend sitting in the lowest position in front of this bridge that they went across and I believe he's blowing into this flute. Yep. And um, 
you know, one, the other guy finally snaps and he's like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you being such a prima donna? Like, we're, we could die because you're having a bad day. Like, you know, he's just being a an angry, like, you've, you know, we've had to sit on this mountain now for 24 hours or however long. And, you know, we're getting hungry and we need to get out of here. But you're causing us not to be able to do that. Yeah, there's some some hints that this that the character who's in a catatonic state has like a history of mental illness or self harm. Yeah, or there is like a. I, I forgot to mention there is a scene earlier where they show his his wrists and there are a bunch of cuts on them. So you get the sense that maybe he's a depressive that he tried to commit suicide a couple times, or at the very least that he's a cutter. Yeah, and that comes back later too uh, in the in the main body of the the movie when they're explaining the urban legend and having a conversation about suicide actually. Yeah, that's true. It does come into play. Um, and I honestly, I didn't even catch that, you know, the part that you mentioned there about his risk, because I I, did, I must have missed that on the screen. And, you know, that's another piece of the puzzle that kind of ties together pretty well. It's very quick and they don't see. That's the thing about The Empty Man. It's not like most bigger budgeted films where they would intentionally have a very, you know, like slow shot of the cuts on the wrist. And then they would probably have an insert to show it to like magnify like you should know this it's sort of like has these really quick things and like is confident enough in you as a viewer that you're going to piece it together so there's this really brief i don't even remember who but they they lift up his wrist to check maybe his pulse and there are these little like lines of scar tissue um but yeah so anyway uh, he's sitting on the bridge and we're cutting back and forth and you're seeing the girlfriend's face and eventually she just takes this knife out, stabs this guy in the back like a bunch of times and then pushes him like off of this ledge into this like oh, ravine. Oh man, that was, that was such a great like... It's and it's so very fast. effective because like, you know, the stabbing stuff, you're like, okay, I'm used to that. But like the kicking into the ravine is like, oh, it's just done really well. It's really creepy. Yeah, I mean, it really feels like your, you know, your stomach feels like it's gonna, you know, turn over a little bit, like you're on a roller coaster because you're looking down from a height. Like that's, that's how effective it is at just putting the viewer into that spot and how fast it all happens. It is, and then it's like in a quick succession, she slits the other woman's throat, and I forget if she pushes yeah. her off or if this woman just sort of. I think she just, uh, wand, you know, she's dying. So she like, I think she pushes kind of wanders and falls off. Yeah. Something like that. And then there's this, you know, very intense stare between who we will learn later is the original empty man, uh, sitting there. And I believe a single tear falls down his, his, uh, cheek because yeah. you get the sense he's still in there somewhere. Yeah. He, but he's been sort of taken over. Yeah, the, the single tear was kind of like the, the visual equivalent of the, the very faint, if you touch me, you'll die thing that he did before, where you can just kind of tell he's barely fight, barely able to fight anything that's going on inside of him. Yeah, but then there's this really great shot where the girlfriend just kind of walks backwards and intentionally just dives back first into this ravine. Yeah, and it's also quiet. Like, usually when you're seeing a movie and someone goes flying off a cliff, there's a scream or you know, a Wilhelm scream. There's a, there's some kind yeah, of expression. Yeah. And like, these are all just a chilling silence as you look down into this just about bottomless cl- ravine or cliff, you know, drop off or whatever. But 
Uh, I thought that was like the highlight of the highlight of the movie for a long time stayed that particular moment in my mind. But then, you know, it kind of takes some space to breathe and and get going again. But, you know, the crazy comes back. (laughs) No, it's true. But like it's just the shot in particular of the girlfriend because she doesn't jump. She's just like straight, you know, standing straight, like up and down. Yeah. And just sort of falls back like a trust fall almost. But so the the angle is just from, you know, it's like from the ledge, and you're not really looking in. So she just like just falls back and is just gone. Yeah, no big deal. And it's just really creepy. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And like it's not the most original shot. I've definitely seen that in things, but it, it's still effective. Definitely. It, it's, it's still like all this happens in like what, 20 seconds, maybe something like it's so, it's so fast. And yeah. That's the thing. It's like, you get 10 or 15 minutes establishing these characters and you know, the peril they're in and the stakes. And so you assume, okay, this will be the rest of the movie. And this will be a thing the film does consistently. And then in like less than a minute, they kill everyone off and you're like, holy shit. Like, um, but so we cut from this to Missouri. And this was the first time that I was like, wait, what? Like, because <laughs> it's like, okay, we're in the 90s in Bhutan, and now we're in the now, or, well, I said 2018, I think, um, in Missouri. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, and we see this, um, we get this quick establishment of the type of character we're going to be following, who is jogging, and then they stop and light up a cigarette. Interesting. So that's a pretty clear indication of the type of man we're dealing with. I, I think it's interesting that we're introduced to him while he's running, uh, given kind of the way they set up the mythology around uh, that that occurrence in the prologue where some mysterious creature seems to like rush forward to, to the girlfriend uh, when we first get a, a sense of threat in the, in the movie. Well, you know what? The other thing is that I just pieced together. We're first introduced to him on a bridge. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And further, we're introduced to him on a bridge when he stops. So it's almost like a mirroring of that earlier scene where the man's in the lowest position in front of the bridge. Almost like a visual. And you wouldn't know this unless you've seen the film, but almost like a visual nod to like this man will be like this other man. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff in there that subtly link the two that you really – are not going to notice you know, until you have a better idea of what's going on. But yeah, that's, that's what makes the movie. So, I mean, in some ways just fun, but it's really just kind of solidly put together. Like there's nothing really that goes to waste. No, it's true. Um, so we follow this man. I'm blanking on his name. Let me see La Sombra. Uh, James La Sombra. La Sombra. Which, if I'm remembering my Spanish is the shadow in, uh, in Spanish. Oh, all right. James La Sombra. I think it's sort of funny because I'm like, this dude does not look. I thought that. Okay. I I was like, he's very white for a Lissombra, but all right. Um, and you know, we just like get introduced to him. He works at a security store. Um, oh, and I just pieced this together too. There's a woman asking him about mace, Mm -hmm. and he's like, "You don't want that mace because you got to shake it. You want this mace." And then later on in the film, of course, he maces someone. Uh, Garrett. <laughs> Who doesn't want to mace Garrett? I know. He's he's terrible. But anyway, um, so we introduce this guy, and, like, he's sort of a sad sack. You know, he's like a chain smoker. 
He's got like heavy bags under his eyes. Clearly a man who has seen uh, some and, shit. Yeah. Um and you know, like he sees a, a coupon for like a free birthday meal at a Mexican restaurant in town, so he goes. There are a lot of oddly funny moments in this that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, they nail the comic relief in just the right doses. They do, because it's not so much that you can't take it seriously as a horror film, but it's just enough that it, like, lets the air out, and then it's actually more startling when stuff happens again. Um, But so he's he finishes his meal, and he gives the coupon um, for the birthday thing. I guess it is his it, birthday. Yeah, his I wasn't birthday. sure I if, like... <laughs> Everything has his birthday. actually is his birthday. I wasn't sure whether he was doing that just to get a free meal or not. You're, you're clearly, I think, meant um, to think that he's kind of just pathetic in certain ways, and he probably does this somewhat often. Like, he just goes to get a free birthday meal from places. Like, that's kind of how I took it. Yeah, like a loan, too, we should yeah, add. Yeah, a loan. Um, so he... Uh, there's this great scene where they, like, come by with a little piece of flan with a candle in it, and they start saying happy birthday, but they just go, happy birthday, customer. Um... Which kind of killed me. But anyway, so he's just sort of like, oh, God. And we cut from that. Um, he goes back to his house, and there's this teenage girl in his backyard, and they start talking. We get the sense that they have sort of a close relationship. Not like a skeevy one, but, you know, like a... Neighborly and platonic, but affectionate. Neighborly, like borderline paternal kind yeah. of thing. Um... And yes, yeah, she talks about, you know, like, I'm so glad you're here. We definitely needed you after my dad died and stuff like that. So you really have no idea what she's and talking then, about, though. Like, it, it sounds like a lot of Right, and she hints that, like, and also when you lost your, you know, loved ones. So you get the sense he's lost loved ones and she has too, and they sort of bonded over that. And she talks a little um, bit about the, uh, <clears throat> you know, what if what if all thought was coming from somewhere? She talks about the power of positive thinking and just, you know, the idea of communicating your thoughts into into reality in some way. So, like, she, it sounds like gibberish when she's talking about it, but it, it comes to take on heavier meaning. It does, and I don't want to spoil it yet. I mean, full spoilers going ahead, obviously, but... It is sort of funny in retrospect watching that, like, wow, you're such a jerk. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, this is our introduction to this character, the teenage girl, who will be basically who um, James is looking for for the majority of the film, which will take him to a variety of locales. Uh, but we cut to, you, you know the next door neighbor's house. And this mother character is, you know, asking after the teenage girl and she goes into her room and sees on the mirror written in blood, uh, the empty man, the empty man made me do it. Or the empty man made me do it or something. So, yeah, um, this is sort of like our inciting incident that gets James to actually start researching and finding out about the empty man and the Pontifex Institute and all this other stuff. Yep. Yeah, and they make sure to mention that he's an ex cop and you know, he's, they, they keep hinting at something bad that he did at some point that got him kicked off the force. But in any case, they, they make sure to establish 
you know, by this point that he has investigative abilities and that's probably why he's in the security business, uh, you know, because he's no longer a cop. And so he, he has these conversations with the police who are investigating her disappearance that kind of establishes some more of his background and like why exactly he's getting involved in any of this. And, you know, he's, he's also got some implied history with the girl's mom, Nora. Uh, and that's kind of why he agrees to kind of take it on. Cause he doesn't think the cops are going to do anything since she's just turned 18. Um, she's still in high school, but she's 18. So she, there's not much that the cops might be able to. I mean, to an extent he's right too. Cause he basically, you know, off screen goes downstairs to talk to them and they basically say, you know, I mean, she's 18. Like, we're not going to look at this like a missing person until it's been a while and she hasn't contacted anyone. And we're back. So before the break, we had just gotten to the point where um, James's character had agreed to uh, try to find where Amanda Quayle, the teenage character, went. And so, at this point in the movie, on the first watch, I got a little nervous. Because I was like, oh god, are we going to have like a teen slasher? Not that there's anything wrong with those, it's just, there are a million and one of them. Yeah, we don't... So, I was, yeah, I was hoping, you know, like, oh... I hope this doesn't just become a thing about teenagers getting picked off one by one for the next hour. Yeah, that's exactly what I was worried about. But I, I think, you know, first of all, the, the prologue and the, the killer finale there uh, kind of put my mind at ease about, you know, what kind of movie this was going to be. And, and I clearly already, uh, well, we had already clearly had our expectations pretty well thwarted by the way that went. And so, yeah, but yeah, it does start to feel like it dips a little bit back into teen slasher territory and we've kind of, built something like an urban legend or, or some of some sort. And then, you know, now we're focusing on a group of teenagers, you know, uh, this girl, Amanda and you know, her friend group who, you know, we soon find out they were all hanging out on a bridge together and, you know, stuff happened. And now, you know, that's related to her disappearance. Uh, so, you know, Lissandra is going to talk to, you know, her friends. Uh, the only one he can seem to track down is her name is Devara, if I'm remembering right. And they have this, I think so. They have yeah. this very strange conversation in his car outside of the school. And, uh, yeah. And he lets her like smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. And which I would say is not kosher, but none of this movie is kosher. Yeah, so it's, it's clearly painting him as a person who can be a little flexible in, in ethics, but at the same time, you know, Amanda's 18. So, you know, maybe she's right. 18. I mean, she's an adult and she'd probably be smoking anyway. So whatever. And he's trying to, you know, it's for the greater good. He's trying to figure out where this missing girl is. This is admittedly my least favorite part of the film. Yeah. The, the whole backstory thing. And it, it, it feels, it feels too familiar right, right there is when it starts to feel overly familiar and you're like, uh, okay, come on. Right. This is when you're like, okay, it's going to be, Business as usual, it's going to be like, we, we heard about this legend. so And it is, what they go to a bridge, and it's like, we heard about this legend. So Amanda um, starts by picking up this bottle, and she explains, you know, if you blow into this bottle on a bridge and think about the empty man, he will he'll be conjured into being. Uh, and so she kind of begrudgingly gets the rest of the teen group to agree to do it, and they all do it. Uh, one funny thing was, like, there's this one character with longer hair and a beanie, and I couldn't place where I knew him from, but I was like, I've seen this actor. Yeah. 
This will happen a lot in this film. Yeah, that looks look familiar to me too. Yeah. He was in the new version of the Stand miniseries. <laughs> he plays Harold Lauder. Okay. Well, that wouldn't be working. And it was hard for me to place him because he's playing like this sort of like creepy nerd character in the stand. But then in this one, he's sort of like a cool stoner guy. He made me think of, I think, James Duvall uh, from the Doom Generation or like Jimbo from The Simpsons. Not or was it Jimbo? Which one? Is it? Oh, whatever. I think it's Jimbo, the one that's got the beanie and the longer hair, yeah. But yeah, a bunch of team doofuses um, uh, recounting this urban legend about summoning the empty man. And you know, they make sure to, to create the rules here pretty pretty clearly where they say, you know, first you, you know, the first day you hear him. The second day you see him, and on the third day he finds you, and that kind of tracks with the events uh, that happen in the prologue. Um, and, and it's a- that's true, yeah. But I couldn't help but think this whole time, like, so a producer was definitely like, "Look, you need to have this moment where you explain mm-hmm. it." It definitely feels because like it, it seems the most like the most overt. Like this is what happens. These are the rules. Like this is who the empty man is. But thankfully, it doesn't like keep that. Uh, it doesn't make a habit of being that kind of on the, it keeps changing the expectations and it's, it's used in retrospect in an interesting way. That's, that's different from what you might be thinking. It's true. Yeah. So, you know, he finds out or James's character finds out about this. He, he's been recording the conversation, but you know, so he, he's, um, I forget exactly the secret. I mean, basically he, yeah, he's like, okay. And, I I believe Tavara mentions the Pontifex Institute. I'm not entirely. Oh no, no no! After this, what he does is he he finds the other friends in the group. He like goes to their houses to try to talk to them. Well, he has trouble finding them at that point. He can't find. And he has them. trouble finding. Yeah, like he'll like he can't find any. Yeah, of but them. he actually walks into. But he'll house. like. <laughs> yeah, actually, he does walk into someone's house when there's no one there. And he goes into the room, and this is when he finds a flyer for the Pontifex Institute. Which is sort of our first hint of like, okay, this will probably be important. And then eventually he goes to the bridge. He finds the bridge and he walks on it. And there's this interesting effect with sound where it's typical kind of crickets and the wind swang. And then at some point, once he's about the halfway point on the bridge, like the sound just stops and there's the silence. Yeah, the silence. And it reminds you of, of the murder scene in the prologue where they're going over the cliffside. Yeah, um, I think this is an effective tool. I've, I think I've seen some films do it before. Um, but it's still, it, again, it's an effective tool. Because it's just like you're, you know, you're used to, okay, this is the background sound. This is, and so when it entirely cuts, you're like, uh oh, something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple other key moments that uh, I think that's repeated, and it sort of creates the different, some of the different like chapter breaks or the different, twists in terms of, of the movie. You know, it, it, things start to change direction when those happen, it usually turns out. No, it's true. Um, at some point, he starts to hear this noise, and I love, like, this is one of my favorite things about the movie. He starts to hear this noise, and so he goes, there's like a ladder that leads under the bridge, um, and the whole time on my first watch, I'm thinking there's going to be some kind of jump scare with the empty man or yeah you know you might find one of them dead down there but he goes down there and the sound is it's like i think it's like five teenagers who have hung themselves at the bottom of this bridge and their shoes are like 
knocking against the yeah, bridge. Yeah, creaking. Yeah, it's like this creaking and and tapping sound that that reminds you a little bit of some of the strange vocalizations that that you've heard previously in the cave in the opening. And I think also the ladder going down into that little subspace beneath the bridge is also meant to remind us of the descent they did down into that crevice in the in the mountains. No, that's true, but and I'm sort of ashamed of this. At this moment, I was like, yes! <laughs> yeah, no, like, and then was great. afterwards, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be applauding a bunch of dead teenagers. But it's a shocking image. It was really effective. It was, Yeah, it creeped me out. It was like, because, you know, at first, you're, the way the camera's set up, you see the one teenager hanging, and you're like, oh, shit. But then they sort of pan to the side, and you see that there are, like, four others hanging in a perfect line behind uh, this one. Yeah, it's basically almost everybody who was on that flashback scene on the bridge that uh, the friend recounted uh, when all the weird stuff started happening. So, it, you know, you don't – it turns out he doesn't find Amanda there, though. No, he doesn't. But, like, I love this moment because, like, again, it subverts expectations. The last 10, 15 minutes, you're like, cool, it's going to be a you know thing about a boogeyman type and there's going to be teenagers running away from it and getting killed one by one. Not one um, by one. And it is not that. It's, it's very quickly like, no, they're all dead. <laughs> Fuck your expectations. They're all dead. And they, yeah, they killed those um, three characters real quick on the prologue too. So it's it's not that kind of movie where it's, you know, one scene is a death and then you have a break and then another scene you have a death. It's We're, we're looking at a mass effect here. Yeah, and it is very, you know, I've seen a lot of horror films, but, like, it is still very startling, because especially when it's a group of teenagers, I think, because you're used to seeing adults get killed, and you're even used to seeing teenagers get killed, but usually it's one by one. And when it's, like, all of them that have just been established, you're like, oh, crap, okay. <laughs> uh, and then we, at some point, cut to... Devara. Uh... Devara is at some sort of spa. Well, she's on the swim team, uh, so she's mentioned before that she has to go oh, to swim right, practice. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, she's on the swim team. So she's in, she's in like a sauna, um, some kind. Yeah, so she's in a sauna. This is another moment where it got very. It was effective, but it was very sort of typical teenage slasher. But she's in this sauna, and the, there's the smoke and, or the steam rather, and the steam is it's almost mirroring, the snowstorm. Um, from the prologue. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Great catch. Yeah, it took me a little bit because, um, you know, the first time you introduce or the first time you see this figure running, it's like through like kind of fog and yep. snow. So, yeah, this figure runs up with some scissors and starts stabbing Devora in the face. We cut and you see she's actually doing it to herself, which is just that's effective. Yeah, as as they say later, uh, people just don't do that to themselves. <laughs> right, and so she collapses, and you know, there's a pool of blood, and she like sees this figure, and it it shuts her eyes, and um, it's kind of like a Grim Reaper sort of shadowy figure. Yeah, it is very Grim Reaper esque. It's like skeletal, and then it's got like the cowl and the the black robe. But it also kind of looks like that uh, mysterious shape that was in the prologue that created the first like real sudden threat kind of moment. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so you'll forgive me. I have trouble going like exactly from beat to beat. Um, and I don't take notes. So uh, let's see. So at some point he, well, he's at the bridge and he's talking to the police. 
And he leaves. He goes back home. Um, but he blew on the bottle on, on the bridge. We, we should make sure to mention when he was checking out the bridge. Oh, that's he right. He does. He blows on the bottle on the bridge. And it seems to be the one that they. And I think that's what leads into the sound cutting. Yeah, yeah. It seems like he he throws the bottle, and then it's just all of a sudden the sound is just cut. Yeah, it seems to be the same bottle that the the teenagers used a couple nights before that kicked all this stuff off in the present day. Um, which which I thought was was interesting that they they made sure to take every single important image and repeat it in different contexts. And I think that their consistency with that is part of what makes it a solid movie. Yeah, it's true. There's like mirroring. There's a lot of mirroring. Yeah, but he, he starts having um, his own weird encounters in his home that seem to be juxtaposed with, you know, this memory of some tragic event that killed his wife uh, in the past. That's kind of looming over him and invading his dreams. So like he's back at his house and starts hearing a noise there and it's it's very unsettling at that point uh because there's there's nobody yeah, else there with him there's no one else there with him he like he gets creeped out he slams his door and um one thing we forgot to mention is he does sort of have like you get the sense he has this sort of very faint auditory hallucination yeah he's taking some kind of uh sometimes something like that where it's like where were you someone's whispering it and he will take some sort of pill that you assume is an antipsychotic mm -hmm. or some kind of anti-anxiety, some form of psychotropic. And so, you know, obviously this happens. He grabs a bat and he doesn't see anybody, but he's, he's freaked out. So he takes the pill. Um, and this ties back to the rules of like the first night you hear him, the second night you see him and the third night you feel he him. finds you or he finds you rather. Um, so we cut from here. Huh. Is it the next day that he goes to the Pontifex Institute? Yeah, that's that's the main events of the next day is checking out the Pontifex Institute. But there's also some interplay with um, some more interplay with the neighbor, the, the mother of Amanda. Uh, and they do more to kind of flesh out this backstory. There, there's some event that happened between La Sombra and Amanda's mom uh, that has kind of put some sort of wedge between them and like, there's still sort of a strained friendship there, but there's also some difficult event that they keep seeming to dance around, uh, but that'll come back into play. It's true. Um, but yeah, so the next day he goes to the Pontifex Institute. I keep saying this, so I'm trying to think of different, different words, but I, this, I do like this a lot. I was about to say, this is my favorite, but like, you can't have three different favorites. <laughs> Um, but I do really, really like this scene a lot. You know, he goes into, I assume downtown Missouri, uh, or something. I don't well, know. they're near St. Louis, I think. They, I, they don't really say that specifically that the Pontifex Institute. I assumed it was something like St. Louis. It's close enough, yeah. probably. <laughs> um, but so he goes to this old building where they have signs for the Pontifex Institute and he goes in and it's like this sort of new agey cult vibe basically there's pamphlets like inner peace and you know the i love that question there's a woman man. at the front desk who's like welcome you're we're glad you came definitely a creepy vibe uh and and the but i love the questionnaire that she asked him to fill out and like he's not having any of it but it's he he there's all these sentences like uh you know a civilization's purpose is not fulfilled until it is destroyed and it's just like 
Okay, now it's getting cosmic and very strange because a lot of this stuff sounds very bad uh, and not the kind of thing that you would uh, want to sign up for. So he's he's not really having any of that, but he's... No, it's this bizarre psychological testing, it seems like, where it's like, if a woman is on her period, like, and it's just like these terrible answers and stuff, and you're like, wait, what? But they all turn out to have um, some kind of different significance than you might think at, at this stage. But at this point, it's just like, what true. on earth am I getting into? <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, the, and there's a running gag that he has, but he goes up and he's like, what is this? And she's like, it's a questionnaire. He's like, no, 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 I know that. Like, what is this? Like, what is this place? And she's like, oh, well, and she's sort of evasive. And he's like, look, I grew up in San Francisco. So, <laughs> and this just keeps coming back, like, in more hilarious ways. Like, at It's like both comic relief and becomes deadly serious in terms of the implications for the character. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, but so at some point, he's able to walk in and see um, see a, a talk by, we assume, the leader of the Pontifex Institute. He's got a very mega pastor kind of style to him. He does. And I, I just really, I'm a real sucker for this sort of like cosmic nihilism, like Ligotti-esque, uh, like... Um, evil Buddhism kind of stuff, because yeah. it sort of it takes like the 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 calming um, the calming stuff from Buddhism, like you know nothing matters and like we are all enough and you don't need anything, and sort of turns it on his head like nothing matters, there is nothing, you are nothing. So it's sort of like the inverse of like the calming. Um, aspect of buddhism it's like you know if you are nothing then maybe the universe is nothing yeah and and that becomes more and more significant when he when he talks to the you know the i don't even want to call him a preacher or pastor he kind of looks more like a businessman sometimes but uh you know he has a one-on-one conversation with him afterwards and he's trying to just learn more about what the pontifex people believe and the speech ends on – or either their conversation or the speech ends on him using the phrase the empty man, and then he starts talking about it more in terms of, of like Nietzsche, I believe, is the main quote that he refers to. And they start talking about abysses and getting all philosophical. Yeah, but there's some interesting dialogue where he mentions like uh, meaning – like, you know, meaning is robbed of its significance through repetition. So this quote from Nietzsche, when you look into the abyss, the abyss stares back – um, this character mentions like it no longer means anything to us, you know, because we hear it all the time. And so suddenly it just kind of washes over us and it doesn't have the weight. But he's like, if you really think about that, like if you're staring into the abyss and the abyss stares back, is there something in you that the abyss is like drawn to? Yeah. And that's, they, they keep kind of inverting these, uh, like sort of religious ideas that we're probably all used to in some form or another, but then turning them on their head and, and, making them horrifying or turning them like so deeply personal that, you know, you're sort of being prompted to examine your inner nothingness. You know, he says something like the nothingness that unites everything, or it definitely sounds very Ligotti at that point. Um, but it, it still also sounds fresh enough that it's still intriguing. No, it's true. Um, and this is of course the, the stapler guy from office space. <laughs> I never remember the actor's actual Stephen name. Root. 
Stephen Root, yes. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he's in the film very briefly. He never appears on screen again, but like, he does a really great job of sort of like having the, um, almost like the thesis statement of the movie. And like, he's the one that tells you like, this is like what the empty man is about. Sort of like philosophically. At least. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of filling in with, it's like, it's almost like a Bob Ross painting. Okay. We've got the imagery establishing the empty man. Now let's talk about the text and the, the ideas behind it. And so, and I think that for yeah, basically, and yeah, I mean, he, you know, and, you, you sort of get the sense like why people would be interested in this sort of a cult because it is, you know, new agey and relaxing, but it's also like, there's definitely something more to it. Um, James kind of sneaks away and goes to the basement to see if he can figure out anything because he, he starts to think that maybe Amanda is at the Pontifex Institute or that she's been to the Pontifex Institute. Yeah, and he asked this guy Garrett. Uh, he, he, oh yeah, there's this weird guy Garrett who talks like an old beat poet or whatever. <laughs> Neil Cassidy. Neil Cassidy, yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he you know he goes in the basement. He sees these people kind of like in a group, but they quickly kick him out, and that's when he runs into you know Neil Cassidy, who's like she was here, but they took her. Um, yeah, I think they sent her downstate is how he puts it. And uh, he's kind of peppering in all these weird 50s daddy-o phrases while also talking about this dangerous cult that is very far-reaching in a way that, you know, this part of the story starts to remind uh, remind me a lot of True Detective Season 1. And I, I feel like that's probably a pretty I was going to say, it got very True Detective Season 1 where it's like they don't have a five-year plan. They got a 500-year yeah. plan, daddy-o. Kind exactly. Of um. Yeah, I think it's just maybe it's like the archaic speech and somebody like smoking in a jean jacket in the rain kind of a thing. Yeah, it's the combination of the... I think it's also the way that they overlay the dialogue while he's driving. Yeah, I like how they sort of make his speech both weirdly cosmic and serious and also absurdly folksy in a way that just is very jarring but effective. And I think even that, you know, goes back to the the confrontation in true detective season one with the, the meth guy. And, uh, you know, so that, that was a really interesting reference there. And I, I think it, it comes back later on too. It does. Um, and so the next place we go to, if there's one moment where I was like, my belief had a little trouble was like, he drives to this camp. Um, but I forget what state it's supposed to be in. It might not be that far away. He's in Missouri, and they just say it's downstate, so you don't really know how far away it is. It could be like a half hour. It could be two hours. Yeah, that's true. Give me one second. I'm going to let my cat in. Okay, be quiet. Uh, all right. Then don't step on the computer. <laughs> Um, but yes, so anyway, uh, he goes to this camp and it's very, yeah. One of the things I like about this film is like, it's, it's almost like a mosaic film in a way. Cause it's like, he's, you know, there are various sort of themes and like, it almost like 
hits different subsets of horror films, like in terms of tone. Absolutely. So it's like the beginning is sort of your survival one. Uh, the second part is more of a teenage slasher sort of thing or supernatural thing. The third is like a new age cult horror. This one is like the abandoned creepy camp horror. Yeah, and I mean there's there's J-horror sprinkled in there too in the way that they set it up on like a day one, day two, day three kind of timer. And even like the captioning of, of that timeline on the screen reminded me a lot of stuff like Ringu and, and – there's probably some other J-horror elements that I haven't caught, but uh, that, that felt Yeah, definitely the, the 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 rules of the day seemed a lot like Ringu. So he goes to this camp. I don't remember if he trespasses or not. I think it might just be open. It seems abandoned. He goes into one of the um one of the cabins, finds a file cabinet. Um a teddy bear. And a teddy bear, yeah. But he he sees like you know VHS tapes, and there is sort of a funny moment where he sees the names of I believe it's all the teenagers, and he grabs those files, and then he sees one of his own name, and it's just this red file with nothing in it. Yeah, that's a oh shit moment. And he sort of says out loud like very funny. Yeah, but something's. Uh, but he starts watching this VHS tape, and it it's like these you know people, kind of in a circle, and they're like sort of chanting and then this this thing appears in the frame and sort of like this weird they've been talking about tulpas a lot so you get the sense that maybe this is a tulpa they created yeah i think we saw the word tulpa in amanda's diary that he was looking through or some one of one of her belongings she saw he saw the word tulpa at some right point. and it's written on the back of the um flyer for the pontifex oh, yeah, too. uh but yeah so he grabs these files um, and he starts watching this tape about this weird, I guess, talpa that's created. It's humanoid. Uh, and then I was going to say it's, it's humanoid, but there's clearly a lot wrong with the being in question, and it's very unclear what the heck it is. No, it's true. Um, and you know, they kind of cut to this teddy bear behind him that's sort of moving. Which is like, that got very creepy pasta too, or it's like the teddy bear that came to life at the camp. Yes, starring Paddington. Um, yes, but anyway, so you kind of get the sense he might have been in a fugue state because like he, he goes into the cabin when it's daytime and he leaves and it's basically night. Yeah, he's been there for a long time. And he's been there a long time, which is sort of weird because it didn't seem like the tape was that long. Yeah, it's like 30 seconds for the viewer um, in the real world. Right. But so he leaves. Uh, I'm just going to stop saying this is a great scene. I love this scene. Because just assume that the rest of these will have a lot there's of There's a lot of good ones. Uh, but, yeah, but he goes out and there's these people chanting and sort of running around this fire. And as he's watching, the flames sort of rise and like spiral into the night sky, um, which was a very arresting image. Again, that sort of seems like True Detective season one sort of imagery. Definitely. It's definitely something that I missed from the later seasons of True Detective. Um, but yeah, so there's that. He kind of, you know, blinks and then the fire's back to normal and the people are sort of like, they're still running, but not as fast. 
He goes to leave and all of a sudden the fire just like goes out and it's completely dark and he looks and he starts hearing these like steps going forward. Before they do that. And he sees this huge group of people kind of moving in unison, stepping towards him and they stop and he steps backwards and they take a step forward. And it's a pretty funny moment. He's like, yeah, no, <laughs> and he just runs away. It's both very funny and very um, unsettling. Like they, the way they play out the, they, they just make you sit there and be unsettled with him while he's trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And the way that they're just staring at him as a group silently is, is definitely one of the top moments of the movie. And I mean, one of the great things is they never explain that either. I've seen this movie twice now. I don't really know why that's happening. Yeah. It's, I think it's just supposed to be a bunch of the low level cult members doing some kind of worship. And then they think, I think they think he's just a random threat maybe because well, information that comes up later kind of complicates that because, like, yeah, it's very unclear what exactly they're all about. It's true. But so, you know, it's almost like a zombie movie moment where he's just, like, hauling ass away from this huge horde of people running at him. And he hops into his car and people are, like, slamming on the windshield and he drives off. I forgot to mention there's a very cool kind of intercut where he's staring at a map. And there's like this road on the map and it sort of zooms in on the map and then the map uh, transitions into the actual landscape from above. Yeah, it's a cool, cool transition. Uh, with the car, which is a pretty cool transition. But yeah, so he hauls ass out of there. Um, I haven't really mentioned this, but he keeps kind of cutting or he keeps going to the police station and talking with this one detective. Um, and this moment is fairly you know this seems fairly interesting because he's like look at all this information i got in the the detective is like did you break in he's like well no and he's like i'm trying to figure out if you fucked up my case because you're not a cop <laughs> and you seemingly broke into a, a camp and stole information yeah so there's definitely some conflict there about uh you know where their priorities are and then he's he's trying to plead with them like hey i'm checking out this you got to take, take a look at this pontifex place and they're like, we're already looking at it. <laughs> so you're just kind of reminded that he's not a cop and out of his element. Yeah, and what's interesting is I haven't read enough of the – this is based on a comic. I haven't read enough of it to know exactly how different it is, but I know that it seems like the main characters in the comic are um, – I, I assumed it was a, a person of color, like a detective, and then this uh, Latin uh, woman – detective and so i'm wondering if when they were making the film they didn't change the latin female detective to you know james shadow Man. Oh, okay that makes sense but the the detective the black detective he keeps talking to it seems like that's a direct nod to the comic because that's about the age that like the character in the comic seems like again i didn't really re i was more like kind of skimming it to see similarities and differences it's very different from what i um gathered it's more of a in the comic it's more of like a generalized madness plague type of thing and people are just acting crazy and there's like monsters all over okay so, yeah they mentioned they kind of allude to that in a couple of spots where you know three weeks ago a mother fed her baby to a microwave or well, I don't know, it's some horrible kind of murder or fed her baby to a bunch of uh, dogs, dogs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so um but yeah, so but yeah, so I, I can confirm that it did interest I think 
it's interesting when films take a source material and sort of take the vibe from it, but don't take the explicit characters or uh, plot points. And it seems like this is what uh, The Empty Man did in terms of the adaptation for the film. Oh, that's cool. Like, I, I think, yeah, I mean, with with something like The Empty Man, with the, the themes that it has of the, the communication of, and so forth and the way it uses video, I, I think you kind of have to do some different things. Uh, I'm not familiar with the, the comic, uh, but, but that sounds like maybe a reason that they might do well, that. Well, I think the fun thing about adaptations like this, though, is like, since it's not a one-to-one, and not like this would stop, you know, someone from still being like, I like the movie, I'll still read the comic, even if it is the same plot. Um, since it is so different, it's like, now I want to read the comic and, like, enjoy it for what it is, and then also I enjoy the film for what it is, and they're connected, but they're different. Like, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it almost seems like this might be like a prologue of sorts to what happens in the comic, but I haven't read enough to know specifically. Huh. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. I, I think uh, I definitely like the movie enough to, to find it worthwhile, but I'll, I'm going to check that out sometime. Um, I, I think also the, the way they, the way that the cop is talking with La Sombra it really fills in some of the, the cosmic horror elements. Because uh, when, they're, when they're talking, he mentions this is a kind of case you can't solve and you can't indict the cosmos, which I thought was a great way of putting, which is, it's not the most unique line I've ever heard, but uh, it's, it sounds No, it but up. it's a great, it's a great line. Cause it's like, it goes into like, yeah, you can put the mother who put her baby, you know, fed her baby to like stray dogs. You can put her in jail, but that's not solving it. That's, that's punishing, but that's not, that's not answering. Why would this woman do this? Yeah. Which you, and yeah, you can't indict the cosmos. Yeah, which you, you kind of need that bit of dialogue to sort of counterbalance the cosmic weirdness that he's just observed from the Pontifex Institute. So now you've got you've got a full on dialogue between the the good guys and the bad guys. You know, I mean, I don't like to use those words, but uh, I thought that was a really interesting yeah. point in the movie uh, and a good conversation. Yeah, like this is my favorite kind of weird fiction esque type stuff where it's not it's not like overtly Lovecraftian, but like. It, it, it's got that flavor. It's got that vibe. It's got that like kind of Legati, this vague Legati esque like the world is a cold place and the cosmos doesn't care about us. Or maybe actively malevolent toward us. Or actively malevolent, yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, I'm pretty sure we cut to James in his house, and this time it's another you know having like a nightmare about this event that happened to his wife and child. Um, he wakes up and kind of looks outside and I think he sees an outline of something. I don't remember. Yeah, there's a shadowy figure on the floor in the hallway outside his room. Yeah, so he goes to check and I believe he sees the teddy bear that's just sitting on the front steps. It, Unless this was later. Well, that's, I think, I might have the order a little bit off, but I think he first has the, you know, the second day you see him encounter, there's some shadowy figure out in the hallway outside of his bedroom, you know, from the same general direction that he heard the sounds the night before. And that shadowy figure like rushes him or no, it doesn't rush. It's kind of sneaks up to the door and he's kind of crouched behind the door looking under the, you know, the crack, you know, between the, with the floor. And he sees like a footstep or a shadow of a footstep. And he's also got a, we've also established that he has a bat in the room because, well, it's not clear what his response is going to be, but he basically just hides behind the door, and, but he clearly sees something under the crack in the door. 
He does. Um, and at some point, he finds the teddy bear that was at the camp. Like, yeah, I think it's when he follows his front step. Yeah, it's, I think it's when he's following out to just investigate what that was. I think he goes out to the door and finds the teddy bear on the porch. Is what happens. Yeah. So this is the end of day two, and we lead into day three. Um, God, what does he end up doing on day three? Uh, I think he goes back to the the Pontifex Institute. Or somewhere around there, and he finds uh, the the beat the beat poet guy. Yeah, he, he's he's pissed off and really spooked now. So he basically abducts Neil, you know, the Neil Cassidy guy Garrett, um, and just stuffs him into his car. Because uh, I mean, I would add, I would also like to add he stopped taking his medication. They make a point to show yeah. that. So you start to wonder, like, is he actively losing his mind? Um, which will come into play, but yeah, he maces the Neil Cassidy character, abducts him. There's a pretty funny cutaway where he looks around to see if anyone's seen and everyone's just on their phones and doesn't even look yeah. up. See, that was another just like two seconds of comic relief that went a long way. It did, but so he you know drives to an abandoned area, takes his kid out, puts a gun to his head and is like, what's happening? Like, where is she? And you get more interesting kind of cosmic horror you know, weird dialogue where it's like the empty man is coming. And it's going to be a bloodbath. He's like pure black chaos. There's minds that exist uh, that are that are in this. You know, there's talk about a shared dream space. Like dreams are not actually dreams. They're actually a real reality that you're connected to. And there's other minds there. And that's it's kind of implied that those are the minds that are communicating through the empty man at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he gets mad and like. The Neil Cassidy character is like, you've you've already started hearing him in your head or seeing him, haven't you? Like, he's already infected you. Got that itch. Gets mad and starts punching this, yeah, the itch in your brain. He starts punching this kid in the face, and he just starts laughing. It's very Joker-esque. It's like his face is full of blood, and he's just howling with laughter. Yeah. Well, this, this is another area that reminded me of that True Detective season one. It reminded me a lot of the confrontation in the woods right right when Woody Harrelson finds the, the dead kids and then you know shoots the, the meth guy or whatever his name. I forget. Reggie, was it? I think it was yeah. Reggie. That, yeah. that seemed like a direct reference um, to that. Reginald Ledoux, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so things are sort of winding down in the film at this point. Um, and it seems like reality is sort of breaking for uh, James. Yeah, he's increasingly desperate, um, definitely, and he, he seems to have much less of a foothold on everything than he ever has before. Yeah, I think we forgot to mention that at some point he goes to this hospital and sees that there's a man there that's basically non-responsive but hooked up to machines, so he's kept alive. Yeah, yeah, that was a little bit and, before he confronted Garrett, I think, because he followed Garrett and some other people to the hospital. Yeah, but so it's implied, though, that this is actually the character from the very beginning of the film who has been kept alive by machines because he is now the empty man and he's the vessel for this kind of ancient, unknowable force. Yeah, and he when he's in the hospital and, and looking at that comatose you know character from the prologue for the first time, you know, the way that they show the, the patient – you know, in bed up against the wall and tubes coming in and out of him is definitely reminiscent of the weird skeletal guy at the beginning that had bone structures or something coming in and out of him and going into the wall. Uh, so they kind of, that's up. true. Yeah. There's like a mirroring of that. Um, but so, 
he ends up going back to the hospital and it's, you know, raining and it's night. And he asks this, he's looking very unhinged at this point, by the way. Uh, and he's just like, I'm a detective. Uh, can you tell me about that guy? And she's like, well, no, like I'm not supposed to. And he's like, well, can you tell me how long he's been here? And she's like, it's been a while. It's a very tense conversation um, with it's very sparse and slowly measured in a way that I thought was a really, a really great counterpoint to the fact that we've just been running around a lot and there's, there's been a lot of tension and suspense building up, but now you're forced to go really slow because uh, he's, he's found out a lot. He's, he's found more folders with his name and information in them. We, we should add there uh, because he, he finds, he goes back to the Pontifex Institute and, and looks through their archives and, and finds information about himself. Again, kind of similar to the fact that he found the red folder on himself at their other site. Uh, so I, I think that has happened right. before at this point that we, we should make sure to include. It's true. Yeah. Um, but so he goes back to the, ho yeah, he's back at the hospital. I believe this is when he runs into Amanda for the second time. Yeah. He's talking to the duty nurse. Uh, it, it seems to be like deserted and kind of an overnight shift. It's very empty for a bit and they're having this strange conversation and it ends on this fantastically chilling note where, you know, he asks, you know, you mind if I go in or mind if I have a look? And she's like, sure. And, you know, in fact, one of his visitors is in there now because she's mentioned that he, this man gets a lot of visitors and uh, he. Yeah. And there is a scene earlier where people are just basically like bowing to him. Yeah. It's very odd. They're like dropping to their knees around his hospital bed, <laughs> which is both funny. Um, and but pretty. so he goes in. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in this film. So he goes in and Amanda is there, and this is when we get our big reveal. Still don't know how I feel about this reveal, but the reveal is that James is actually not real. He's the Tulpa that was created by Amanda and other people from the Pontifex Institute. Yeah, yeah. So she she gives a little bit of an info dump, and and that was it, it was kind of stretching it. I think in the amount of time they they allowed that to unwind during, because she gives him like a ton of information. Uh, about the fact that, you know, this man here in the hospital bed's dying, but he's our only channel to this this cosmic realm and these entities that are trying to communicate to us because they keep repeating the mantra, you transmit, we receive. So they're clearly putting themselves in a subservient position to whatever cosmic force is trying to, you know, invade our minds or whatever. It's true. Um, but so... So they need a replacement for the dying guy because he can't withstand. They need a replacement. And they. she explains that they needed someone who had sorrow and grief because it's easier for the empty man to get in that way. Yeah. Um, which I think is delightfully cruel because it's like, so not only did you just tell this man he's not real, <laughs> you invented him from your mind. You also gave him a trauma background, uh, insult auditory hallucinations, you made him addicted to smoking and drinking. You made him have to take pills. And I mean, uh, he uh, had an affair with a neighbor that uh, caused right, him to Right, he not had be an affair with his, his neighbor wife. while his wife was dying. Yeah, in a car crash that has haunted him to this day. In a car crash, yeah. So that's not, it's maybe not the nicest. It's a rough um, thing to inhabit. It's a rough, yeah. My, my, the only thing I have an issue with in terms of the Tulpa stuff is it raises so many questions like, does that mean, does that mean, I don't know, like, did he 
was he born when he was jogging on the bridge? Or? That's what I took took away from it because that lines up with the way they first, you know, on the first day, you know, whatever, and and they show the bridge being sort of the instigating factor. So I assume that he was born on that bridge. Yeah, and it is kind of mirroring the bridge that you see the guy on in the prologue. So that that sort of that does make sense. But it, you know, there are questions I have with the Talpa yeah. thing, where it's like, does that mean he's been? Does that mean he was at the funeral of Amanda's dad? Because they show him there, but I couldn't tell if that was just his his oh, implanted memory. Yeah, she wrote that, or if that was actually her POV. Yeah, she talks about how she wrote that, and she wrote him. And so, like when he was at the Pontifex Institute and found a bunch of newspaper clippings relating directly to his personal experience, he's like, "How the fuck do they have this?" Uh, and then she later says that basically I wrote that, and these are clearly materials that have been put together to build a story. And so everything that he remembers from before he came into being on the bridge, I think she wrote into his existence. That that was what I thought was implied. Yeah. So he understandably, you know, freaks out, runs out of the hospital. Uh, he goes home. But it's not home. Or no, before that, he actually tries to call Nora, Amanda's mom, and she's just like, who is this? So that's, Pretty creepy. Yeah, that, that served as the instigation for Amanda to explain that none of this was actually what he thought it was, and that's where the reality break was occurring. And uh, so he, you know, the other thing he saw at the Pontifex Institute, you know, in a previous scene was you know, this mysterious picture of a chair in a in a dirty tunnel, and it was in his file, but you don't know what it means yet. Uh, and you know, at this point, right? I, and it took me a second watch to realize this, but the the corridors and stuff that he walks in pretty soon that he gets like transported to i think those are at the in the basement of the pontifex institute yeah that's that's what i gather because they have that brief section where like his experience now bleeds over to the reality of a previous scene and they sort of show two copies of himself but like consciously not interacting with the other and and that's kind of hard to explain but it, it works really well to kind of tie everything into a knot that you can better decipher but still not fully understand it was very J-Hole. Right. So he, yeah. So he goes back to his house and he sees that his bedroom uh, door, there's this like eerie glow coming from it, this light. And he goes towards it and he's sort of flashing in his mind of when his uh, wife and child died on, they end up dying on a bridge, which I think is perfectly done. Yes. They, they could do a swan dive off a bridge because, uh, I don't remember why she loses control for some reason of the car, but uh, yeah, I don't. Oh, there's a deer. Oh, no, that's right. She swerves to avoid a deer. So she swerves to avoid a deer, um, and he's it's sort of intercutting with him having sex with the neighbor while this is happening, and eventually he gets to his bedroom door and opens it up, and he's back in the hospital room, mm-hmm. which I thought was effective. Doesn't he stop? Doesn't um, he stop I one think of the before, tunnels first? I thought he went through the tunnels before. That. He does actually. Before this, he runs into that weird cloaked figure that sort of barfs black <laughs> sludge into his body. Yeah, that was a very X Files kind of deal. I felt it was. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So then, anyway, you know, he walks in this uh, room. He sees the empty man and he proceeds to just like shoot the hell out of him. Like he blows his head off and he shoots him, I think twice in the head, in the chest a bunch of times. He empties the whole magazine. Empty man versus empty magazine. 
Yeah. Um, and you see actually uh, the old empty man, there's like this spray of blood coming out of his head and it sort of mirrors like in the look of it. I think the skeleton from the beginning of the film. Yeah, no, it was definitely reminiscent of that, and also of like a halo on the wall behind him. But yeah, it was a gra- that was a great image that they that they ended. It really was. It's really cool. And then he turns around, and this is sort of when you get the sense that like reality is just done because <laughs> like the hospital staff, instead of running at the to the patient or anything, they just stand and stare at him. And you sort of hear this like the chanting again. We trans and everybody, yeah, everybody bows down, starts like worshiping him basically, and you start to hear like you know uh, whispered like you transmit we receive you transmit we receive. Yep, it, it felt very hereditary at the conclusion there. Uh, I was reminded of, but I you know kind of that's the only place you have to go at that point, and I felt like it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the greatest ending, but I feel like it was the best one that they could give it, and that it worked well enough for me uh, and. Yeah, I think the problem with this sort of film is, like, there's no good way to end it, because it's, like, it's, it, it again, going back to X-Files, it's that thing where it's, like, when your whole film or show is based on intrigue and trying to explain something, but you don't want to explain it outright, it's, like, there's no real good way to end it. Yeah, but it, it, it you know, it feels like a bit of a twist that you could see coming, at least for a couple scenes, maybe, but, but it doesn't yeah, feel yeah. like... You're not being cheated. Like I did, you know, I know some people enjoy high tension, but that was a movie that a lot of people just kind of feel t- cheated by the twist. And this isn't really that kind of situation. Uh, so I, I felt like it was. No, personal. because the difference is I was able to go back and watch The Empty Man again and have it like inform the film, but not spoil it. Exactly. It's sort of like I think about a lot of M. Night Shyamalan movies. It's like once you've seen them once and you know the twist, you go back and you're like, this isn't really as interesting. Exactly. This one. But this was like. This actually, I think, added to the intrigue because you start having all these interesting questions like, like, why even bother with having him, like, go through this three days of, like, looking for this girl who's not missing? Yeah, you better understand that this is a a created being that has to be subjected to grief, sorrow and fear. I guess that's it. Yeah, they just wanted to make him suffer more so he'd be more receptive. It's a Ligotti born to fear kind of dread. Yeah, it's true, but um, and yeah, that's the film. And I, I really, you know, obviously I've said this already. I really like this film. I think the consensus for most people is that it's just a pleasant surprise that they went in thinking it'd just be like the 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 bye bye man or whatever, and then they're like, wow, this is like actually an interesting film. Yeah, there's a lot there, and you know, it it never feels like pastiche or like it's just all this smug self or smug referential stuff saying hey look at all this genre stuff that i can recognize and put in my movie it balances it all very it reminded me a bit of the show um channel zero okay you know i haven't seen that one well channel zero is like overtly creepypasta like they did the first season was candle cove and the second season is um no end house so like they actively went to existing creepypastas but like in terms of tone, it, it does – something about the film gives it a very creepypasta vibe. I think the Tulpa thing helps. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and admittedly, I just – I think Tulpas are something that if you're you know immersed in internet horror culture, like you've heard about Tulpas. But for some reason in mainstream film and television, it hasn't really come into play yet that much. Yeah, the only thing that I, I thought of was that X-Files episode in the suburbs uh, with the trash monster guy. 
but uh, other than that, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I think there's a little bit of Twin Peaks that mentions Tulpas, but I haven't seen that season yet. Yeah, yeah, but I thought this was this was just a really interesting film that kind of combines like horror and weird and you know creepy pasta and mainstream horror and sort of like like hit all these notes while still being its own kind of song type of a thing. Yeah, it's a great juggling act that they managed to pull off that that many movies would not pull off. Yeah, because I was thinking about it, I'm like, I feel like in the hands of a lesser writer-director, I mean, let's be honest, there's American Horror Story, which is sort of does this, sort of does like, it picks a trope, it picks a type of horror, and does that. And I, I'm not always a fan. You know, I think it can get kind of trite really easily. Absolutely. But this film manages to have just enough of everything that it sort of rewards you for being a longtime horror fan while also giving you something new. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and the second watch, I thought, added plenty to, to the story because now that you have the right framework to watch everything else, you, you realize better how it all ties together and you realize how it's really a, a tight movie. It's a, a two-hour, 15-minute movie that feels like a 90-minute movie because it doesn't feel boring. You never it doesn't drag. No, there's nothing that's like extraneous. There's no scenes where you're like they just added this to pad the runtime. Like everything connects and is important. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I would definitely highly recommend it. I was very pleasantly surprised. Same, yeah. Um I look forward to seeing I'm sure once what I predict is basically Empty Man, which is already getting a little bit of buzz, is gonna get more buzz as the months go on. Eventually, a streaming service is going to be smart enough to pick it up. People are going to see it in mass. People are going to like talk about it a lot. There's going to be a lot of think pieces. I think one of the greatest things about this film is it actually does make you think, whether you like it or not. <laughs> there's no denying that it's very you think afterwards. You're like, wait, well, what does this mean, or what is this about, or why was this here? And so I, I can see him maybe getting you know offers to make more films because of the. I mean. I had not heard of – I didn't even see the trailer for this. I had heard, not heard anything about this. And there was some film site that had an article about it. Basically, like, this thing survived studio hell and, you know, COVID because it came out last October, which obviously no one was seeing stuff in the theater then, so. Yeah, I don't even remember how I first heard of it because I remember watching the trailer and thinking it looked kind of unremarkable. But I, I must have heard some praise of it at some point around the same time, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have watched it, to be honest. Uh, but I heard a lot of people talking about no, it. No, it's true. Like, like if you had just showed me the cover and been like, it's a good movie, and that was it, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to see it. But just seeing, like, not only this article, but I was seeing, like, tweets and stuff, and like, oh, man, you got to see the empty. And I went on Reddit, I think, and there were a bunch of good, positive people discussing how much they liked the film. So yeah, it's a, it's a great film. I'm excited for it to hit streaming services eventually. If it does, that's sort of tricky because part of the issue was that this was put out by Fox, which got bought at Disney like around the time it was put out. So you're sort of in this weird like where would it go streaming wise? Because you know Disney, we're sort of in this weird growing period with Disney as a streaming service where they own Fox now, but it's like so what do they do with it though? Like, what do they do with the Alien films? Are they going to put those eventually onto Disney Plus? Because I, I feel like they wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, they're going to put them in the vault and lock them away for a decade or two. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I could see them coming out with their own 
Fox streaming service. Yep. And maybe they're, I mean, I've heard interesting things like they're going to have Noah Hawley who did all the Fargo seasons is working on an alien TV show. Okay. Yeah. So who knows? But in any case, uh, I'm sure David Pryor is going to have a good career after this. I'm excited to see what he does. And uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. We're getting almost to the two hour mark, I think on the episode. How about so. that runtime? All right. Well, great movie, but, and good discussion. Yeah. And you know, Obviously, come back anytime. Um, oh, and uh, we're on Twitter at CelluloidSits, and our main hub is on Anchor, and we are also on YouTube. So uh, thanks for listening. We got a lot more movies in store, and uh, have a good one. <laughs>